Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bede Haynes. And before we begin, I'd like to pay my respect to the First Nations people of Australia on whose land I'm sitting. And today's show, we're interviewing Carmen McLean. She is a professor of history in the South Asian Institute at the University of Heidelberg. If I've got that wrong, Carmen will correct me. I should actually ask if that's the correct way to even say uh, Dr. McLean's name, but we'll come to that in a second. We're talking about her book, British India and White Australia in 2020, published by New South Press in Australia. And first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, B. Is Karma correct? Karma is correct. Ah, very good. Now, I have read your book, which is very interesting. It's first of all, could you let me know how a bit about your background and how you came to write this book, British India and White Australia? So I have been working as a um, historian of South Asia for much of my career, um, you know, really for the last, say, 30 years. Um, But I've been based in Australia. It's only very recently that I've moved to Germany to take up this position. And uh, so my my specialisation has been... um, Indian nationalism and um, on uh, the politics of um, communication about ideas of nationalism in North India primarily. And I've spent a lot of time in archives in that time and although my focus was very much on on happenings in North India, I was never, and I was always surprised actually, um, when I saw Australia somehow mentioned in some of the things that I was reading about. And over time, these really started to accumulate and I started to think that perhaps there was a historical project here that could be looked at which, in which we could understand the British Empire perhaps more fruitfully through the lens of settler colonialism in the Australian case and comparing that with the experience of British colonialism in India. So that was one thing that got me started in the project. And I think the other, I mean, the other thing that really pushed me was the um, the sort of crisis around the um, a number of racist attacks in Australia in starting in 2008, 9, 10, um, as large numbers of Indian students were in Australia and um, coming up against you know, repeated forms of discrimination, and some of which actually ended up in in violence and um, and murder. Actually, in um, I, at least one case, and mm. this really created a crisis. I think for Australia India relations, um, and I felt that that needed to be addressed. And so I felt like a, a historical perspective on the history of how 
Australians perceive India would actually be quite constructive in that particular situation. And I was also, you know, a lot of my students um, were, you know, either um, born in India or grew up in Australia or had come from India and were talking to me about their experiences as well and I wanted to sort of translate that into history writing. And so this book, which is a real departure from my earlier work, um, came to, to being, I suppose. It didn't come to being very quickly, but it, it, it came nonetheless. Mm. Could you, the, the name of the book, British India, White Australia, it seems to me to present a plate, two places, neither of which I think sound particularly attractive. Could you explain the title of the book? Yeah, sure. It's actually a good point. Um, so British India refers to the, the state <laughs> of India, I mean, um, under colonialism. Um, and it, I mean, formally, this is the period from um, 1858, although, of course, the history of the British in India goes way beyond that, uh, earlier than that. And, um, of course, India is decolonized and becomes uh, the states of India and Pakistan in 1947. And this is a period um, whereby India has no, has extremely little political um, independent. Um, subjectivity. It has no independence, no ability to craft its own policies, economic policies, um, external relations uh, for the purposes of this particular book. And, um, you know, of course, I I think everyone's uh, at least vaguely familiar with the narrative of the movement against the British in India, which um, builds up over the course of the, you know, starting from the late 19th century, and reaches a crescendo in the mid-20th century, um, in the 1940s, where a number of anti-colonial movements come together, primarily um, that of the Indian National Congress, but also the Muslim League, and um, India is decolonised in 1947 and becomes these two nation-states. So that's that's the, the British India part of the story, um, and it, it describes, I guess, this sort of vexed relationship between um, British, uh, you know, British ideas about India and how Indians manage the experience of colonization, and it's it's a. I mean, I've glossed over a lot there. It's a um, it's a long-standing, brutal, and humiliating process for many Indians, and it's not a period of history that is remembered with great fondness. And I mention that because a lot of, I mean, I, I was often um, sort of called into, you know, second-track diplomacy when I was in Australia. And I, I often saw the our Indian interlocutors being reminded that we were all part of the British Empire. And most Indians don't think of that as being something to be fondly remembered. They think of it as a time of great oppression and, um, and uh, uh, you know, uh, actually comprehensive uh, oppression and Australians didn't seem to realise this. Australians seem to think that the experience of colonialism in India could be likened to that in Australia. Now, I think for Australia's Indigenous people, that's probably a, a fair comment perhaps. I think the, um, the experience of colonisation for Indigenous people has been actually very devastating. Um, but for white Australians, it was a very different kind of process. 
Um, again, in Australia, we do have, I think, a very marked form of um, ongoing anti-colonial sentiment, but I don't think it's nearly as, um, uh, you know, rigorous or extensive um, as what we see in South Asia. And that is because we were, white Australia was white, Um we were not treated as being, uh, you know, fundamentally different. Um, Australians were seen as being colonial and um, that didn't always come with particularly positive connotations either, but we were still white and therefore were able to, um, you know, Australians were able to project and demand a certain amount of self-governance from a relatively early period, which in the Indian case was, uh, was never accepted by the British. Mm. Um, and then, of course, we have the from, uh, you know, so that's, uh, you know, describing how, you know, the British see Australia being white. But then we have a, an aggressive uh, policy, uh, immigration policy known as the White Australia Policy informally, um, which prevents the uh, further arrival after 1901, after Federation of um, non-white people to Australia to settle. Um, now, of course, in the 19th century, there were considerable numbers of um, uh, Chinese, uh, lesser numbers of Japanese, but also actually a, a, a sizable body of, um, of Indians who had come to settle in the colony um, as free settlers. And that, um, that was prevented after 1901 and for a number of reasons which we can talk about throughout the interview. But British India and white Australia is... Uh, a way I wanted to point out the the real differences between the colonial experience in India and the colonial experience in Australia to suggest that we we perhaps can't compare them and expect them to be a point of um, community, perhaps. Yes, that was one thing I did take from the book. It, it actually had never was something that I never found was particularly well taught in Australian in my Australian school education. Is that they really are two these two colonial settlements, and it's funny that the British seem to want to keep them both homogenous almost to say, well, here are the new white people in Australia. Now you, there's Indigenous people. We'll forget them, and you just must stay white. And in, in India was almost the reverse to say, well, he, yes, you are all these people who live here traditionally, but you're not going to our other colonies. You're stuck here, and we'll control the terms on which you go elsewhere. So, in fact, it was it was even more complicated than that because, in theory, the British liked to project an idea of the empire being um, essentially one space where everybody could roam freely. And there were a number of, um, I mean, there was a, in particular, um, in the aftermath of the Great Indian Rebellion in 1857, Queen Victoria sets out a proclamation which acts as a Magna Carta, a series of promises that um, will guide British rule in India henceforth. Now, of course, the, the British very quickly depart from that um, and much of the politics of the uh, late 19th century is about, uh, you know, Indian uh, activists testing those promises and and watching them fail a lot of the time, and one of those promises was that um, you know the that we will treat all of our 
imperial citizens equally, something to that effect. And, um, you know, Gandhi himself in South Africa used this and reinterpreted it slightly to suggest that we are guaranteed equal treatment with your white subjects and yet we are, uh, you know, subject to very, very different um, and, and extremely negative treatment, in fact, in places like South Africa. And so the, the British were often, I mean, that, that was a real, um, I, I think what we'd call in Australia a gotcha moment. It was very hard for the British to ne- negotiate around that because um, Gandhi was correct, actually. And so there, there continues to be throughout the 20th century this sort of um, almost a, um, a, a constant uh, dialogue where Indians are claiming these rights that are enshrined in this proclamation, which include equal treatment uh, of all imperial citizens. But in fact, what the British have done is set up these settler societies who become, uh, they, they actually style themselves as the dominions explicitly to uh, assert their difference as white colonies and to demand uh, different treatment and different political, uh, you know, subjectivity as a result of that, uh, including, of course, the right to self-governance, which is explicitly denied India um, throughout this period. So the British themselves actually would have liked Australia and South Africa and Canada to allow a certain amount of, of free movement and frequently asked them to at least have a, a low quota system allowing a small number of, um, of people in. Um, however, the, the right to self-governance was always drawn upon by all of those settler colonies actually um, as being an inalienable right for them to set the terms of their um, immigration programs. And again, that that discourse is something I think that would resonate for many Australians because it's something that we have heard in recent decades as well. You know, the right to self, you know, uh, determination is somehow inextricably linked to our immigration programs. So there's a a longer history of of racism that comes into play there as well. I I kept, when I was reading the book, I kept in my mind listening to playing over and over again John Howard saying we decide who comes here in the terms on which they do. It just seemed that was a um and that's the next part I want to ask you about. So the white Australia policy seemed to have a a, a sense of that we the, the 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 white people in Australia decide who comes here. We set the tests with the tests if you could explain I'd like you to explain the what the what the policy was for those some listeners overseas might not know about the white Australia policy, and then what drove it? Why did it? Why was it needed? Why did the Australian populace think this was needed? If they did, so this is where I think um, one of my contributions is to emphasise the role of British Indians in the framing of um, these policies. So um, now, in fact, and in fact, many Australian prime ministers would often, when challenged in London. Um, about their about the white Australia policy, they would say with absolute truthfulness there is no white Australia policy on the Australian, uh, you know, in Australian statute books or legislation. It doesn't exist. And technically that was true. The words white Australia were never mentioned um, and that was, um, that was actually a strategic manoeuvre. The Immigration and Restriction Act, which is the formal name of the legislation that was passed in 1901, um, 
was in itself, um, I mean, you know, the implementation of White Australia was actually in the the administration of the Act and not actually in the Act itself. And interestingly, the the way in which the Act would be administered would um, was also actually very hard to find written down. Um, the instructions did exist at some stage but uh, actually are still very hard to actually trace in the archives. But the practice was effectively to, um, and again this is something that the British asked the Australian government to do, taking uh, an example from um, one of the African colonies, Natal. They had worked out that you could actually discriminate against people on the basis of race by um, asking them to undertake a language test. Now, a language test seems to be an objective knowledge test um, that in itself is not racist. But, of course, in the um, application of the language test in Australia, it was entirely, and it it evolved over about a four-year period until they perfected um, how to do this, but Initially, the, in 1901, the test was a, a, a language test that was in English and um, the, the newly arrived person, uh, usually on the boat itself before they could even get off, were required to um, write out a text in English as it was dictated. Mm. Now, of course, Indians, many Indians could speak English and they passed this test very well. And so it was realised very quickly that um, this was not going to work to prevent um, Indian labour. It it prevented a large number of of Chinese and Japanese and others who didn't speak English. But because, uh, you know, India was part of the British Empire, um, English education was, um, I wouldn't say widespread, but, you know, most people who were uh, migrating could actually manage an English language test. And so then uh, the policy evolved um, between... 1901 and 1904 to allow the the person to be given a test in Swedish or Norwegian or some other unlikely European language that they would be sure to fail. And then on objective terms, they would be told that they'd failed the test and they would need to get back on the boat and, and leave Australia. So this was the mechanism through which Australia was kept white by administering a language test that... Um, you know, when, you know, interrogated, didn't look racist, but in fact was in its mm. application. And there were also, and then if a person was lucky enough to be able to pass this test and get into Australia, could you let let me know some of the restrictions that still remained on Indian immigrants into Australia on labour, on voting and things like that? Sure. Again, <clears throat> this differentiated between states. So some states were better than others in terms of allowing um, Indians the right to vote, for example. So, in fact, there was already a, an Indian community in Australia in 1901 when the um, Immigration Act was passed, and they were actually given, they were conceded the rights of residency, but they weren't really conceded rights of citizenship um, so they were not able to vote in federal elections, although they could in some state elections. So that was something of an anomaly that was challenged in the 1920s. But they couldn't claim pensions, and this was a real point of contention because many of these 
people had actually fought in imperial wars um, overseas in the Boer War, for example, before they came to Australia. And some, in fact, even volunteered in the Great War as well. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so um, there, there is this sort of one of the, the stories that I tell is the the gradual escalation of claims for citizenship by Indian communities in Australia. And the numbers are fairly low, um, especially relative to the Chinese community, which was much more substantial, but uh, the numbers are probably around 7,000 and they start to dwindle. A lot of Indians, in fact, uh, leave Australia in the early 20th century because they find it so restrictive. The key point, of course, is that they are unable to bring family members um, to come and live with them, and which effectively um, it, it means that either many Indian men um, marry Australians, and and you know again the numbers there are fairly small, but that that is that does happen. But many men, of course, migrate already married and are unable to bring um, family members with them. In theory, they're allowed to bring their wives, but they're not allowed to bring adult children, and they're not allowed to bring their parents. And of course, the extended that would have entailed the breakup of the extended Indian family unit. So um, the what, what in fact happened was a lot of men who migrated who were unable to bring their families, um, worked in Australia and, um, and sent money home and visited them once every few years, um, if, if that. So they, they were really forced to live quite isolated lives, many of these men, those who didn't marry Australians and settle. Um, right. Then there were also restrictions on how they could labour, the, the kinds of work and industries they could actually find uh, employment in. And, again, this depended on the state, but many Indians were prevented from working in um, uh, the sugar industry, mining, um, hospitality, manufacturing, um, and actually that, that was quite a comprehensive list. So, again, this was meant to be a policy to maintain the, the salary levels, if you like, or the, the wage levels of white men, um, and it was based around fears that um, the uh, non-white labour would be cheaper <clears throat> and therefore a, a form of competition. Could I ask you so, this? Yeah. I was going to say, with the people who come to Australia from what we now call is called India, that within its within that country itself is a massive population, and there are various different regions. Would the actual people from India in the early nineteen hundreds have considered themselves a unified people? So, someone from Gujarat and someone from Kerala would they think of themselves as being part of the same nation, or is that is that something that we've imposed on them? I don't think we imposed it on them so much as, I mean, this is a, a much longer process, I think, that builds um, over a, a much longer durée, actually. Mm. Um, so I think there is a lot of regional identity that is in particular enshrined within linguistic differences. But right. I do think there is also <clears throat> a shared understanding that we see growing through the 20th century that... Um, that, you know, someone from, let's say, Punjab and someone from, let's say, Madras, as it was then, come from a, an entity that is part of British India. Um, right. And so that is a, 
that is a larger solidarity that starts to uh, come together in the 20th century. Um, it's, it's, I mean, I, I talk in the book about British India as a, as a term, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, it's, a, it's actually a strategic term that many Indians use because they know that by appealing to themselves as British Indians that they are reminding Australian legislators or politicians or interlocutors that we are actually part of an empire and they do have a, a larger claim um, within that imperial subjecthood, if not citizenship, to being treated the same way as Australians were. So um, British India is a, is a political category um, and, a, again, a strategic manoeuvre by many Indian associations and individuals during this period who are fighting for, uh, you know, uh, what we would call now, you know, rights, basic civil rights actually in Australia. Yes. And the book, one of the, there's a persistent image in parts of the book of Indian men in turbans, in wagon, horse-drawn wagons as hawkers travelling around regional Australia selling things. Could I ask you how that, how, how that practice came about and why did it cap, seem to capture at least the popular imagination of, of the locals? So because there were so many limitations on where Indians could work um, in forms of, you know, not being able to work in manufacturing and not being able to work in, in mining and, uh, you know, the sugar industries, uh, for example, they were usually forced into um, effectively freelance kinds of, of work and many of them found work in hawking. Um, it, was, it, was, it was regulated but um, it, it didn't prevent them from actually working as such. They also had, of course, access uh, through their linkages in India to um, Indian products as well which were actually, uh, you know, there was an enormous um, demand for in Australia, um, in particular cloth, for example. So large numbers of Indians who found themselves in Australia and who committed to staying, at least for the time being, actually worked as hawkers. And, of course, this was in a, um, you know, a period in Australia where rural areas were not particularly well connected by, um, by rail or by road. Mm. And so the, the hawker, you know, a horse and cart was um, providing a, a much needed uh, commodity to um, especially rural Australians. And so they, they were actually a, a feature of, um, of Indian, uh, Australian rural life. Um, and, and also, you know, with a with a presence as well in in um, Australian capital cities. Yes, and wearing a turban, I picture that as being someone who's of the Sikh background. Is that accurate, or is it, was it a much broader practice than that amongst Indians who came to Australia? And um, well, there's different kinds of wearing turbans, different ways in which a turban is wrapped and um, right. and, and often the, the meaning that's attached to that. So uh, six do wear turbans, um, but there are, were also a, a large number of other um, Indians who settled in Australia who also wore turbans and that often reflected regional religious identities as well. Um, we can get a really good sense of this actually by trawling through the collection of um, certificates um, to uh, waive 
the the holder of the certificate from doing the dictation test. So these were something that any any um, any person who had settled in Australia before 1901 um, could get when they went to India and this would mean that they wouldn't be subject to the dictation test when they arrived because it was recognised that they had established the right to live in Australia. Um, and so it was a kind of a, a pre-passport document. But on all of these certificates are photographs of um, of Indians and their names and their sort of bio data, where they were born, what colour eyes they had, what distinctive markings they had. Um, and so there is a, an extraordinary um, photography collection there that um, that I used and that has been popularised by the artist Peter Drew in a recent series. Um, the right. Aussie series that many Australians will be familiar with um, because it's been a regular feature now of the um, the Australian street art landscape. Yes, and could I could I ask you when you're talking there about photographic collections, you mentioned in the book some archives that have access to lots of photographs, family photographs and things like that. Could I ask you what role that had in preparing how that affects doing history as a historian, those sort of resources now available? Sure. So a lot of um, – one of the, the real problems that I had in writing the book was to find, uh, you know, textual records, documents written by Indians themselves in Australia um, because, I mean, ultimately what I was trying to do was to try and uncover some of their stories and experiences. Now, um, of course, the – the overwhelming amount of textual data that I had access to was either government, you know, generated reports, which were actually a lot of the time responding to perceived problems. It was mm -hmm. actually quite negative in, in its nature. Um, so, for example, we would get, you know, we would find legislation and debates you know, before the legislation was passed in particular, which talks about the the problem of Indians wanting to come to Australia and what this would actually mean for white Australia. And in this we find, you know, um, what we would call, you know, discourses pulling in opposite directions that Indians can't come to Australia because they are not sufficiently modern or educated and they are just too different to us. And then in other parts of the same argument, we find that they are, they are in fact considered to be a threat actually because they are becoming educated and uh, are able to understand and um, and compete actually with uh, Australian, uh, you know, workers on an equal par. And so we get these sort of contradictory racial discourses which um, which kind of make no sense. So I, I, I didn't find those particularly useful in understanding, you know, how people themselves experienced being in Australia, living in Australia on a day-to-day -day basis. And then we had the Australian newspapers, which, um, you know, were often full of, uh, you know, racist diatribe actually. Um, and that also didn't really provide a very clear window into the lives of these people. But what I did find was uh, what we would call vernacular photography, meaning right. photographs taken by early Kodak cameras by ordinary people who made a choice. I mean, photography, you know, in the 1920s, 1930s was a very expensive medium and one thought very carefully about taking a photograph because it, it was 
it was a commitment. It was a it was a financial commitment, and I found it very interesting that um, you know there was a lot of um, attempts, particularly around the time of the bicentennial in Australia, to um, curate photography collections that provided us an insight into ordinary life. You know, um, in Australia's first two centuries post colonization, and a lot of Indian hawkers came up in this collection. And that sort of made me think, well, actually, a lot of people felt that these people were worth taking photographs mm. of, that they were important to them. And then I tried to read the photographs. When you look at the photographs closely, you, you find a number of things. You do find and you can see photographs where clearly the photographer has taken a photograph of this person without their consent and the person is aware of having their photograph taken. They're not particularly happy about it and they're not engaging with the photographer and that's a disturbing phenomenon of course but the I also found photographs of men looking at their photographers and smiling and posing very consciously for the for the photograph and uh, a lot of the time we would find on the back of the photograph the the name of the um the Indian hawker who had been photographed and a little story about him that, you know, we used to buy this from him or that from him and he used to love playing cards. And that gave us, I think, um, it gives us a much better sense of some of the the more neighbourly interactions between Indian hawkers and, and white Australians, which I think, uh, you know, for me anyway was it, it gave us a, a a slightly more optimistic sense of the ways in which Indians lived in in white Australia. I don't, I don't think it was it was ever easy. I do think there was pervasive racism, but they they did make friends as well, and people did learn their names, and they did play cards with people, and there were um, there were some relationships that transcended that racial barrier and um, the forms of racial difference, which were so pervasive in the media, in newspapers, in fiction, and eventually in film as well. Yes. So that's um, well, that sounds like to me that was a, a breakthrough almost in the way history can be done. That sounds very, very good to me. One On that point, I'd like to ask, you have the images you've just described of the people in the streets without any necessarily open hostility, and then you have great great extracts in the book from cartoons and advertisements that really would just be deemed to be racist. And we're talking about some in the Bulletin, which is a, a leading publication in Australia by Norman Lindsay, a leading artist in Australia, that really depict a racist view of Indians. Can you talk about how that came that culture came to arise where you could put in a public newspaper a really an offensive image so i mean the bulletin was um was well known for its um for its aggressive valorization of white australia and um in fact this was not particularly unusual and in fact the images in my book are relatively mild for the bulletin's usual standard, unfortunately. Um, The the images by Norman Lindsay um, and later by his brother Lionel Lindsay 
that I focus on begin as an advertisement series based around the figure of Chandalu, who is a mm-hmm. starts life in 1909 as an Indian hawker who is advertising boot polish. Um, and he starts off as a relatively benign character, but um, he becomes a, a weekly feature of the bulletin. Um, and he, he develops a narrative which it, uh, pulls in all kinds of directions. You know, in one week he um, dreams of uh, training racehorses and winning the Melbourne Cup, and in another week he becomes a, an Australian politician who actually platforms in favour of the White Australia policy. In another week he's following Halley's Comet. Um, in another week he is... Um, yeah, you know, traveling to um, you know, traveling to what is discussed as home, and uh, visiting South Asia. He actually goes back to Colombo. So again, there's this sort of geographical confusion about where he's actually from. Um, the series begins with him coming from Bengal, um, yes. and then uh, you know, a decade later, he's from Colombo. But um, mm. in the Australian imagination, certainly in in the Lindsay brothers' imagination, it's it's all one. So. Uh, and there's parts of Chandalu that can be read as being very much within the tradition of Kipling-esque representations of um, Indian masculinity um, as being, you know, um, kind and, you know, servile and non-threatening, um, reliable, dependable, um, and a, a number of other kind of um, tropes that we would be familiar with through some of Kipling's more famous work, Gunga Din and uh, The Jungle Book, for example. Um, Now, he ends up fighting in the Great War and um, his narrative in the Great War where he fights alongside a a koala bear and um, a a dog who's always with him as well. Was, I argue, um, it was a weekly feature of the bulletin. It was still in an advertising form, but it became an adventure story that children in particular demanded. Um, and so Chandalu becomes a real phenomenon in Australia, which I do think, despite it, despite it being actually profoundly racist, um, particularly in today's terms, um, it actually starts to shift the idea. It introduces to Australians the idea that Indians are actually fighting in a war that we are part of as well. And I think that does actually substantially shift understandings of Indians in Australia in the 1920s, which is actually when the, um, the you know, the, the fight for their, um, their rights as citizens uh, really wraps up and in which eventually in 1924 Indians are given the vote in Australia um, federally. Mm. Yeah. Now with... Um I want to come back to World War Two in a little bit, but one question before to keep a chronological order, I wanted to ask: in the 90, in the nineteen twenties, you you have a section which was eye opening for me with the tariffs that were pro Australian and against India, where it was cheaper in India to buy wheat imported from Australia. That to me seems bizarre. Could you give us some insight into the background to that? Sure. Look, um, very briefly, there were imperial, um, you know, there was a a shared, you know, trade, um, what's the word, a community, I guess you would call, um, in which tariffs were reduced for, um, you know, countries from around the empire. Um, And what this actually meant was that large 
amounts of Australian wheat could effectively be dumped in in India. Um, and in fact, so India, in India, Australia was famous for two things. One was white Australia, which mm. was understood not necessarily as a policy but a place. I mean, Australia becomes right. understood as being white. So white Australia is how it's, um, you know, the, the two terms are almost ubiquitous um, in India right. when Australia is mentioned. And the other thing Australia is known for is its um, its wheat. It's abundant mm-hmm. source of wheat, but also the the the, um, the flooding of Indian markets with Australian wheat, which actually undermines Indian growers, especially um, in in you know wheat areas, in particular Punjab, where incidentally many um, of the Australian residents also came from. Um, Indian right. Australian residents came from as well. So this became a, um, a source of much resentment, actually, um, that Australia was able to take advantage of imperial trade policies to dump its wheat. And, in fact, um, eventually there was protective legislation in the 1920s um, which prevented that. Um, and it, it actually causes a real um, shock to the Australian um uh, you know, economy, and it, it eventually um, prompts a the establishment of a trade commissioner in India, an Australian trade commissioner, who's um, you know placed within one of the Indian um, you know governments of India departments, which was of course British run, to advocate for Australian trade interests in matters of Indian trade. Um, but it was certainly a, a major point of contention um, yes. in India. Then, as the century progresses, India becomes a republic in 1947. I, I, I think that's the actual same day as Australia Day, wasn't it? 26th of January? So, yeah. So, technically, India becomes a republic in 1950 because the legislation to make it so is is passed um, on, on January 26th. Right. But that in itself also celebrates um, the 26th of January in 1930, which was um, a day coordinated by Gandhi and the Indian National Congress to declare that from now on India would not settle for dominion status. So it did not want to be um, a colony like Canada or Australia or New Zealand it wanted to be an independent nation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in fact, it, it does end up negotiating, uh, which takes some time. It's a negotiation um, with Britain, but also there's obviously legislation in India and the constitution that needs to be negotiated. Um, but it does, in fact, manage to gain acceptance, including amongst by the other dominions, that it has a... Um, a, a reasonable claim to be a republic within the Commonwealth, um, and that that is obviously a, a particular um, constitutional status that it insists upon, and is granted. But that takes some time to negotiate. So, hence the nineteen fifty. Right, and at this, one of the parts of the book is what's known as the Quit India movement, and uh, Gandhi is involved in that. And it seems, could you explain what that what that was and what that movement was all about? Sure. So the Quit India movement was Gandhi's uh, last great movement. Um, so, you know, the um, movement for Indian independence has usually been explained with reference to Gandhi and the Congress. I, I think it's a... Uh, 
you know, it's something I've problematized in my other research, but for the purposes of our discussion here, um, Australians observed Indian claims for independence with a, a growing sense of anxiety um, for what that would mean for Australia. So um, we see a lot of anxiety in Australia with, in, with Gandhi's first movement, and that's the non-cooperation movement in the 1920s, um, which mm. comes on the aftermath of the Great War. And the feeling in Australia, if I could generalise, is one of quite of surprise, actually, um, and uh, and a failure to understand this uh, desire for India to leave the the Great British uh, Empire. And so, there's not a lot of sympathy, I don't think you could say, in the 1920s. By the 1940s, there's been a number of really radical changes, which alter the way in which many Australians see. Indian aggressive Indian independence movements, and I would I would say that the the Quit India movement is um, the most strident of all of the movements, and um, that is because it, obviously it's in the context of the, the Great War. Um, you know, Gandhi explicitly and and many other nationalist groups explicitly refrain from um, demanding uh, independence or performing non cooperation in the in the Great War. But by the 1940s, um, the political state in India was just no longer acceptable for Indian nationalists, and um, the uh, you know explicit promises of decolonization were actually a condition for much Indian participation in the war, in in yeah. the Second World War. And when the British started to prevaricate around that in 1942, Gandhi called the Quit India Movement. He was immediately put in jail. The movement um, very quickly spirals out of control. It's a violent movement. It becomes a violent movement. It is put down violently as well. Um, now, interestingly, not a lot of this gets through to Australia because um, there's extensive press censorship. Um, both in India and externally. And so I, I still think we get a, a very, I don't think we have a very strong understanding of the, the development of the Quit India movement relative to Gandhi's earlier movements, especially uh, his uh, 1930s campaign, the Salt March, which was extensively televised. Um, televised is the wrong word, but filmed um, and, um, and very well projected overseas, actually, especially in the US. So I think our understanding of the Quit India movement in Australia was actually quite weak. We were still heavily reliant on British sources of information, which were, of course, profoundly imperial. Um, so I, I still don't think we had a very good understanding of the Quit India no, movement the, in Australia. The book has some very insightful passages I found about the press suppression of the news from India and, and actually how it infiltrated directly into Australia, into Canberra. And it seemed um, when you read it now, you think far out, this is just controlled news. This is the, they're, they're just, the, the government of India, which I read as being the British interests, are just telling people how to think about what's happening in India in a way that favours the British. Absolutely. I mean, there were um, press communiques that came out and that were sent to Canberra and Canberra was asked to set um, to circulate these amongst news, you know, they're basically press releases which um, gave a particular interpretation of, for example, Gandhi's what they call self-imposed fast. 
um, which mm. urged Australian newspapers to talk about Gandhi's self-imposed fast as being something that he brought about himself and um, basically encouraged an unsympathetic interpretation of it um, in the Australian press. And Australian news media did fairly faithfully reproduce that. Um, yeah. So, yes, there is a, um, a very deliberate attempt by the British Government of India, um, but also, uh, you know, relevant offices in London to project a particular interpretation of Indian nationalism as being extreme, unreasonable, um, and even laughable in some, peri- um, some periods um, in, in Australia. Yes. And that is projected to a degree. There is also a counter-discourse, though, in Australia that is starting to take hold in the 1940s, and I think that's what really makes the difference. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about that counter-discourse. Is that where you're, you talk about the, um, I've got my note here, there were, there were a couple of movements. There was the Australia-India League, and well, that might have been a bit earlier, but was that they seemed to really fight hard to even be heard in, in the beginning. Yeah, so there's there's a number of what I, I would call, you know, India lobby groups in Australia that, that grow up. Uh, I mean, there are obviously um, Indian organisations that are organised and run by um, Indians resident in Australia in the early 20th century, which are mainly organised around um, projecting a sense of Indian, um, you know, the rights of Indian subjects in Australia and, and demanding this, their rights as citizens. But this is actually something different. This is actually white Australians lobbying and mobilising in order to project a better understanding of Indian politics in Australia. And it's mainly coming from journalists who spend time in India in the in the First World War but also in the interwar period. Many of these people actually, you know, there's also a, a distinct voice, um, pro-India voice in Australia that comes out of the Theosophical Society. Mm. which is a it's a counter movement it's a counter current but actually a very influential one with some very influential um australian politicians including um alfred deacon in the late 19th century who right. are involved in that and again it's it's a you know there's problems with the theosophical society's understanding of india too but it's a more sympathetic understanding than had hitherto existed in australia we also start to see um there's a an Australian communist um, by the name of Jack Ryan who visits India in the late 1920s. And he's also a journalist who writes extensively about the India that he sees, which is in flagrant contradiction to the this, you know, you know, Indian empire with tigers and elephants and maharajas and extraordinary wealth that has been the mainstay of a lot of um Australian travel writing, and um, but also that that sort of connects up with some of the the writings of Kipling, which again heavily inform Australian ideas of India in the early twentieth century. So what we yes. start to see are these journalists who um, also use photography in their um, their writing that start to interrupt this idea of a progressive India that is becoming westernised. Um, and which demonstrates the extent of, um, of, of poverty, of working conditions, and uh, that, and, and of an interpretation that actually links these conditions to the fact of British imperialism itself as well. Now, there's a number of journalists. Uh, Jack Ryan's not the only one. Um, uh, Birchett's another one who um, 
is in India in the interwar period and he comes back and writes extensively about Nehru and his observations of the Indian National Congress and he self-publishes and writes to newspapers and starts to again interrupt some of these um, more imperial ideas about India in the um, you know, 1920s and 1930s. Uh, and mm. I do think that starts to make a, a shift by the 1940s. Right. And with this, with with the shift in the 1940s, it seems strange in the book you talk, tell the, the, the story of R.G. Casey, who becomes the governor of Bangalore. And if, if there's a country that's on the verge of independence, moving toward that, and there's a shift of some degree in Australia, seems striking that an Australian would be put in charge of part of India. And yeah. And an, 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 so he was governor of Bengal um, for actually only two years, but the governor, I mean, Bengal as a province was one of um, British India's most critical provinces um, for a number of reasons. It was the first, it was actually the first capital of India, Calcutta, Um it's moved to Delhi in uh, 1911, but um, a lot of the infrastructure of the old, the grand old capital of Calcutta is still in place. And this is where Casey goes to, to live. He's appointed for a number of reasons. Um, I, I mean, I, I think Casey is actually a really interesting figure. He's a conservative. He um, is very anti-Cold War, but... I think he understands and has a, a much better appreciation of India than anyone else in Australia, um, certainly, um, in the 1940s. And he's appointed to India on, his, on the back of his experience in um, a long international career working in London, in Washington, and um, subsequently in the Middle East where he was in charge of supply during the Second World War. And he's appointed to Bengal, which is actually in the grip of a, a famine, a, a, a horrendous famine. Um, and, in fact, the, the role he's given mm. is actually a poison chalice um, in many ways. It, it was very difficult to do a good job of administering Bengal in 1944. The famine had um, officially been declared in 1943, and even when it was officially declared, that was way too late. Um Food had been scarce um, in Bengal um, from early 1940. Prices had rocketed. Um, and Bengal was a, um, a, a critical province for a number of reasons, um, not least because it was on the, the war front after the entry of the Japanese and the, um, the occupation of Burma, but because it was the home to a major um, industrial city, Calcutta, where, where Casey is, of course, based. And so strategically, from a, a war effort point of view, it was also critical for the British. Now, the problem is, of course, that the British fail to see it also as the home of a large population who um, gradually starts to die as food scarcity becomes a problem. And a lot of the, the food scarcity is actually um, created by British policy. Again, there's an enormous debate now in Britain about Churchill's role in this. Um, Churchill and the War Cabinet in London, um, which are dictating policies but also refusing to change policies when they are pointed out to be killing large numbers of Bengalis, um, policies which um, deny people of food, which requisition grain, um, which mm. um, implement a scorched earth policy, for example, so that 
Um, the Japanese can't access food grains, but of course that also means that Bengalis can't access food grains as well. Um, there's a reclamation of boats in the area, and uh, you know the Bengali diet is heavily reliant then on on rice and fish. And if you don't have boats, then you can't fish. And again, these were all security policies made to secure Bengal from invasion, which end up creating um, mass death and suffering for Bengalis. And the rural areas are hit particularly hard. Large numbers of Bengalis come into Calcutta where they, um, you know, very slowly die on the streets of Calcutta. And mm. um, meanwhile, there are, you know, people who work in essential industries um, are able to get access to rations. So we have people dying amid other people living reasonably comfortably. And when people try to help those who are dying, they they simply die faster because um, once the body is beyond a certain point, it needs to be very slowly resuscitated with a medically supervised diet. And so, you know, middle-class Bengalis who felt sorry for um, people in advanced stages of starvation would give them food and it would just kill them even quicker because their their bodies could no longer handle it. They needed to be medically rehabilitated and that was a level of um, uh, support that was not provided um, in, in nearly enough numbers. Yeah, so it was a terrible time to be uh, a governor of Bengal. It was a terrible time to be a Bengali, more importantly, I think. Um, yes. And and Casey's given a role that is extremely difficult to actually perform well in. Uh, he doesn't perform perfectly, but he's deeply troubled, and I think it really um, shakes his idea of British imperialism after this. Yes, and um, as a, I mean, there's a cartoon you have from Norman Lindsay in the book with Casey arriving or moving through Bengal, and there's a a. a a salute, a military salute, and the caption is, are they firing at me or for me, which I thought yeah. was... Um... So, again, um, there was a, an enormous outcry at Casey's appointment. Um, so in, in the course of the 20th century, um, one of the demands of Indian nationalists is that, well, if Indians can't go and live and work in Australia, then it stands to reason that Australians can't come and live and work in India. And in theory, that position was accepted as being reasonable, but it was never really legislated. Eventually, there is legislation in the 1940s which prevents um, prevents um, men from the dominions working in India, but it's really only held um, for South Africa where the discrimination is at its worst. Um, right. In the case of um, in the case of Casey, he is appointed by the king and that's actually not, not subject to Indian legislatures um, uh, that are, uh, you know, there are Indian Indians in legislatures by the 1940s in India, but they don't necessarily have um, a lot of autonomy and they certainly are unable to overrule an appointment at this level. And so they all protest. Um, there's a lot of protest at Casey's arrival. Um, but it's it's just politely ignored. But it's something that Casey has to deal with throughout his tenure. He does actually win sections of the press over, especially in Calcutta, but the, the Delhi press in particular remains quite critical of Casey as being mm. a, an Australian in a country where uh, Indians, you know, still are not, not able to arrive in Australia and yet an Australian is now taking part of 
the project of British imperialism in India. That is seen as a problem. Yes. Well, Karma, we have to start wrapping up now, but I'd like to, um, if there's anything, is there any one final observation I would like, two observations I would like to make. One is the book is has wonderful pictures in it. It's it's very it's a very deep book I found, very informative and a wonderful cover, beautifully designed book as well. So thank you for giving us this book. And the next thing is I just have to say we got through this interview without mentioning that sport that shares a name with an insect, which I think is probably a good thing. We can forget about that. Um, you must be talking about crickets. <laughs> yes. So my, my point in the book was actually to try to um, shift Australia-India bilateral relations, which has been ordered around um, what is often called three Cs, Commonwealth, Curry and Cricket, and neither of these things, I think, are actually conducive to building good bilateral relations. Cricket is so competitive and a lot of the time is actually conducted in, conducted in, in again, very racial terms. And so I think it's something more to be uh, perhaps less, um, less, less proud of. Mm. Um, it's it's a, it's a competitive game, and we do have cricketers who have um, you know been really great in the Australia India relations space. Brett Lee is, is perhaps the best example of this. Mm. He's done wonderful things, um, and uh, yeah, and I think has very good relationships with Indian players. But that can't be said of all Australian players. Uh, and so I, I would I would like it if we could actually find other ways of basing our um, international relations. And I think reminding Indians that we share a history in the British Commonwealth is um, is also not particularly diplomatic because our experiences as Australians and Indians' experiences were very, very different and race was actually really central to the ways in which that experience played out. Um, and so I think it's important for us to be mindful of, our, of those histories, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Karma, for that. And I should have said Karma has attended this interview very early in the morning from the other side of the world in Germany. So thank you also for, for that and for your time today. Thank you so much for your interest, Speed. No, my pleasure. And um, that is the end of our interview with Karma. I would like to thank her. And this has been the New Books Network, Australian and New Zealand Studies channel. Thank you.